Uh, my dad read the Daily Bread. Dad and mom both did. And pretty much been a habit of mine forever. It's, there's an iPad app for the Daily Bread. There's a lot of other ways that I spend my morning and kind of get ready for the day. But I, every once in a while, read theirs. And I love the illustrations that they'll use every once in a while to set up a message. I read the one the other day out of the Daily Bread on the 7th of March. It talked about the butterflies that hatch in a garden in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I think there's a picture of it on the screen this morning. When they do, they do it in a tropical paradise, perfectly suited for every need they have. The temperature is perfect, the humidity is perfect, the food's a perfect blend of calories and nutrition to keep them healthy. There's no need for them to go anywhere else. Yet every once in a while, they'll see a lot of them fly up to the edge, kind of look at the outside, and you wonder if they're wondering, what is it like on the other side? I know there's everything I need here, but I wonder what it's like out there. And then he began to answer this question or ask a couple of questions. He said, I almost wanted to talk to them and said, do you know that everything you need is right here? The outside is cold and harsh. You're going to die within moments based on specifically now when you're born. And then he went on to say, I wonder if God ever wanted to say that to us. Do you ever look longingly at things that you know probably aren't good for you? Do you sometimes use your energy to gain what you really don't need and probably shouldn't have? Do you ignore all the provisions of God because we wonder if it's a little bit better somewhere else? Do I spend time, he asks, on the fringes of faith, and at times do I risk even the danger of destruction? I thought those were fascinating questions based on the fact that Peter's been basically saying the same thing over the last few weeks. Everything you need is in God. He started out the second book saying that everything you need is in God. Everything you'll ever need is in Christ. Every time we celebrate communion, and normally this time of the year, I kind of like to reserve it for the celebration weekend of Easter and Good Friday, but every time we celebrate communion, we talk about these simple elements, bread and cup, piece of bread and a little grape juice, and they're insignificant in and of themselves, but they hold such wonder and power and meaning in what they represent. And every time I do, I'm reminded of Jesus saying, everything you need's in me. Everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever looked for, everything you ever hoped about, it's in me. The world's going to tell you it's in this or that or having to have that or the pursuit of this or finally when I accumulate this or finally when I get there, finally when I get that promotion, that car, this house, that loan, whatever it may be. But I just want you to know everything you'll ever need is in me. That's exactly what Peter is saying. So he says, stay connected to him. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Don't look anywhere else, but sadly, people do. And at times, even those who began following Christ. Remember who Peter is writing to. We look at these chapters over the next few weeks, especially today and next Sunday as we talk about the judgment of God. And we talked last Sunday morning about those who veer to the right, to the left, who go backwards sometime in their faith, who walk away from what they once had, and we used the illustration a few weeks ago of Jesus sowing the seed in the garden. And we, we think of the judgment of God and the impending judgment of God that we'll talk about in a moment in chapter 3. And we assume that he's writing to the world. He's writing to non-believers. You better get ready for God. You better find God. You better have peace with God before you die. Judgment is coming. And all of that is true, but Peter is writing to believers. And sometimes we forget that when we look at these kinds of sections of the Scripture and even when we look at what we've been in the last few weeks when he said, look, don't, don't go to the right, don't go to the left, don't go back, stay focused, stay committed, stay connected to me to the end. 
He's writing to believers. So there's an assumption that some aren't going to go one way or the other, and he's been warning them about that. And a lot of people are going to come and try to steer them in another direction. Last Sunday morning, I began with the illustration of the warning labels on medicine and how critically important it is that you read all of that. You may not be able to understand it, but you better know what it is you're taking. And you need to know the effects that it's going to have on your body. It's critical to your health. Peter has been saying, look, i got some real clear warnings here for you. I don't want you to ignore them, just like you sometimes do on that medicine bottle or that pamphlet they hand out. Kind of say, well, I don't need to worry about it. I, I know what's going to happen. God's been saying this forever. I'm, I'm clearly aware of what the Word of God says. Look, don't ignore these warnings. Peter is pretty clear. Matter of fact, he spends an entire chapter out of eight books, eight, eight chapters. He spends one or two whole chapters giving us some really clear warnings. Now, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, some grew up in churches where you did get a lot of judgment stuff. He felt like every Sunday you went to church and it was the ministry of condemnation. You know, you, you didn't feel better when you left. You didn't feel uplifted. You kind of felt like you're never going to measure up. You'll never be the kind of Christian that they need you to be. You'll never be the kind of Christian that he expounds you to be. And, and you walk away instead of encouraged and uplifted, feeling like, wow, man, I'm never going to get there. Now, there are times that others have gone to churches on the other side of that. It's all about the love and blessings of God. God loves you. He's going to take you all to heaven. You serve him. You give to us. God's going to bless you like crazy. Matter of fact, he wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be so blessed. You give and God will continue to bless. And they never talk about judgment and condemnation. Paul was speaking to a young preacher named Timothy giving him some advice in ministry and said, Timothy, I'm going to give you some advice. Preach the whole counsel of God. Preach love and blessing. Preach grace and truth. Talk about the wonders of God and His mercy and all that comes with that. But you also need to make sure that you talk about judgment and punishment and everything else in between. Peter spent a lot of time in the first book in the Second chapter of the second book reminding us, or the first chapter of the second book reminding us of the incredible things that come from having a relationship with God and how important it is that we hold on to those things, especially in the middle of uncertainty and difficulty. Then comes chapter 2 of Second Peter, and he begins to say, look, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to try to pull you away from the truth, truth being obviously the Word of God. I want to make sure that you have a clear understanding of what that looks like because there's going to be a lot of people that will distort the truth and try to steer you away from that. And what Peter said would happen, did. Down through the ages, over and over and over again, people began to distort the Word of God. They would, as he said last Sunday morning, take a little bit of truth and mix it with some lies and it all of a sudden looks good. And sometimes it was just pretty blatant. And down through the ages, people have taken the Word of God or Christianity and tried to do a number of things with it. In the Middle Ages, they tried to win people over, convert them to Christianity by the edge of the sword, accept Jesus or die. Not exactly what he was saying here. Churches down through the ages have done so many different things and taking some of the Word of God and putting it in another direction. The churches that required priests and nuns to be celibate, celibate when in 1 Corinthians, Paul suggested that only if you're felt called to it wasn't a requirement to serve God. Only if you feel that's the thing that God is calling you to. And sadly, many wonder why they're dealing with so much abuse. The pastor of the church that I came to faith in Christ in in the 1970s when 
the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement was really taking off, stood up one Sunday morning and said, if you speak in tongues, you don't belong here. Total misapplication of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and dozens of really wonderful people left. Prosperity theology of churches and pastors. Some of them I see every once in a while on Cornerstone TV that talk about continuing to add the blessings of God and God will bless you and wants you to be successful and wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Again, total misapplication of Luke 6 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I could give you dozens and dozens of examples down through the centuries of people who have distorted the Word of God and people who are splitting churches over unbiblical issues or misapplications of Scripture, which is, again, one of the reasons that I kept pointing back to those eight things that I shared with you at the end of the message last Sunday morning. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but every, every couple of sentences, I would kind of make you go back to the Word of God. Remember? When you look at those eight things, you'll see two or three times, this is where truth is. Go to the Word of God. Confirm it with the Word of God. What is God's Word telling you? makes an assumption that I know it, that I'm in it, that I read it, that I'm aware of what it says. Over and over again, Peter said, I'm telling you, you've got to stay on the path. Don't go to the right or to the left. There's a lot of people who are going to come and try to steer you one way or the other or try to pull you back. And so whatever you do, stay on the path. Continue to keep your eyes on Christ, the author and finish of our faith. Get to the end. It's worth it all. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. For heaven's sakes, don't go back. Stay moving in that direction. A couple of weeks ago, I reminded you of this amazing future that God has promised. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind can conceive the things God has prepared for those who love Him. But as always, God is honest. He's honest about what He has for us in the future. He's honest about what happens if we ignore the truth. He's honest about the future that we have someday. He's honest about what happens when we refused to offer his salvation by grace. He talks to us about the importance of staying on a path and why it's worth it to the end and what happens to those who don't. And so Peter, as always, gives this great balance of grace and judgment. This morning you're in 2 Peter chapter 3. I said to you yesterday on a phone tree that, that we're going to be in the Word of God a lot this morning, so I hope you brought your Bibles or have one in front of you or with you or in your iPhone that you can continue to walk through this journey with us. This morning we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so I want you to be there. Now that is a beautiful sound, isn't it? You heard it, didn't you? It's the sound of what? People opening the Word of God. First service, it was so noticeable, it was fun. Of people turning to the Word of God. Thank you so much. 2 Peter chapter 3. Friends. I'm writing now a second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you need to understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil devices. He said that in his last chapter. They're going to say, where is the coming? He promised. We'll talk about it in a minute, but over and over again, Jesus promised that he would return. They're going to say, where is that coming? Ever since our ancestors died, everything is on as it has since the beginning of creation. Somehow they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. But by those waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed during the days of Noah. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that the Lord today is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come, it will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a hugely important question. He answers it. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. That day will bring about a destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt the heat, into heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Where righteousness dwells. You remember rereading that section of Scripture out of Revelation last uh, couple of weeks ago. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Any of you ever found that true? <laughs> His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people, as I said a moment ago, distort, as they do with other Scripture, to their own destruction. Now, in light of all that, which is why the word therefore is there, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Because of Easter coming up and uh, desire to do a missions focus after Easter, we're only going to spend two weeks on this chapter. So if you think I speak fast normally, hang on to these next couple of weeks. Peter not only reminds us of this amazing future that we tried to portray to you a few weeks ago, but he also clearly reminds us of impending judgment. And you love that about the balance of Scripture overall, but when Peter does it, he does it within the confines of these few short chapters. All of biblical history, all of biblical history starts with and ends with God. All of biblical history starts with and ends with God. In the middle of all of that is God's creation of an interaction with humanity. It's an incredible story. Justin knew only the section of scripture that I'd be in this morning, but the portrait that he painted a moment ago couldn't have fit better with what it is that I have here in my notes in regards to what David says. In Psalm 8, it's almost as if David woke up in the morning and saw this sunrise and said, God, you are amazing. When I saw it this morning coming in, just as we came over the horizon based on where we live coming down Bonnybrook, you look to the left or to the right, and it's just incredibly beautiful sunrise. When we came across Mercer, I looked over again. It was like God took this wonderfully large paintbrush and just kept going like this all across it. And I don't know how long it lasted, but as I looked up at it and I knew what was in my notes, I thought, no wonder David would declare this. God, I cannot believe what you've done with your hands. I cannot believe your handiwork. Every morning I wake up, I'm amazed at the sunrise. Every night before I go to bed, I'm overwhelmed with the sunset. God, your handiwork is overwhelming. The sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and in the middle of all of that, you place man. What is man that you are mindful of him? What made you think of us, almost as if he is saying? 
In the midst of all of that, I've often wondered if David wanted to, in the midst of all of that creation, why'd you mess it up putting us in it? Why'd you mess it up putting me here? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that you made him a little lower than the angels to only lift him up and offer him a sacrifice. David is overwhelmed with God's creative wonder. The story begins in Genesis. God places Adam and Eve in this incredible garden with everything they could have ever wanted, similar to the illustration I gave you at the beginning. God gives them an amazing offer, one restriction, and a very clear warning. The offer? Here it is. Everything you'll ever need is here, God says. The restriction? Don't try to get it on your own. Everything you'll ever need is in me. Everything I've ever wanted you to have is right here in front of you. One restriction, don't eat from that one tree. One warning, if you do, there's a price. Couldn't be any clearer than that. I mean, is it to you? Couldn't be any clearer than that, but they disobeyed. With everything in front of them, they went that other direction. They went to the edge of the extreme. They paid a horrible price, and mankind has been repeating that cycle over and over again. Over and over again, you see it all through recorded scripture. You read the Old Testament, and you see people saying, God, we're sorry, I'm so sorry, I, I realize your commands, we'll repent, we'll follow you, promise we will. And so he does, and he blesses them, he pulls them out of slavery and sets them free again. And not too long, they turn their back on him and go their own direction. And then, God, we're sorry, we didn't mean to do that, we follow you, we'll follow you. For the, the list is endless, over and over again. In the midst of all of what God has done, and all that God has described, and all that God has given, they go their own way, do their own thing knowing they're going to pay a price. And then they repent and turn their backs around toward God, and he said, okay, and he does it again and again, over and over again through the Old Testament. And right in the middle of that vicious cycle of repentance and sin and turning their lives around and still going back into that darkness again, God shows up. <laughs> I mean, we read the story, and we know it every time we celebrate Easter and Christmas, but I'm telling you, in the middle of that vicious cycle all the way through the Old Testament, God Himself, not a representative, God Himself walks in the middle of this mess. Every time I hear of a tragedy around this world, where's God? God's in the same place He's always been when tragedy strikes. He walks right in the middle of the mess. And in the middle of all this cycle of the Old Testament, God Himself shows up and walks right in the middle of it. Three events that are unbelievably profound in the middle of all of this stuff. John describes it. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. By the way, the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and made His dwelling or tabernacle among us. We saw His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. A couple of weeks from now, we're going to celebrate the other unbelievable event. Not only did God himself show up in the middle of all of this mess to offer himself, he offered it to all of humanity. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll pay the ultimate price. I'll die so that you don't have to. I'll pay the price for all your sin, all of your mistakes, all of your repentance, all of your vast mistakes. I'll pay the price for all of it. And so he offered himself a sacrifice for all. And that's in a couple of weeks what we'll celebrate. And then of all things, not only did he willing to step into this mess and offer himself, not only did he say, I'll die on a cross for your sake, I'll rise from the dead, and he does. And not only and even in the middle of all that, he said, tell you what, I'm going to come back and take you where I'm going. 
I'm going to leave right now. I'm going to prepare a place that will blow your mind. I'll come and get you and we'll go there someday. And all of those promises over and again, all through Scripture. But not only does Scripture point to the beginning of God's creation and time as we know it, but it also points to an end. God says, folks, I want you to know that not only does this world as we know it have a beginning, it also has an end. And a promise from Jesus himself that will come again and rescue us and set us free and, and allow us to have this incredible experience with him for all of eternity. And not for everybody, but only those who believe in him and trust in his name who put their faith completely in him. And I'm telling you, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you that will blow your mind. At the end of his ministry here on earth, Jesus came and made a promise to his disciples. He said, in my father's house are many rooms, the NIV says. The King James that we all grew up with said, in my father's house are many what? Mansions. We get the song, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. Somehow it wouldn't sing the same when it says, I've got a room over the hilltop. Doesn't mean it just doesn't even ring in your head. I got a room at the hilltop. I want a mansion. He said, I've got a place prepared for you that you can't even imagine. I'm going. I'm going to prepare it. When it's all ready, I'll come back and get you, and I'll receive you to myself. You'll be with me forever. Paul talks about it in Thessalonians when he said, We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or have died in him who knew Christ as Savior. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of Jesus, will certainly not precede those who have died. The Lord himself. Just as that angel said to the disciples when Jesus ascended up into the, or into the hands of God in Acts chapter 1, when the angel came down and said, what are you looking at? I, I love that question. What do you think I'm looking at? Jesus just left. As a matter of fact, he's still going and he's rising up into heaven. He said, that same Jesus is going to come down someday and he's going to take you to be with him. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ who knew Jesus as Savior will rise first. And then the rest of us who are left alive will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. It's the rapture. The Left Behind series that many of you are familiar with. When I grew up, it was Thief in the Night and Distant Thunder. We tried to scare everyone into heaven. And it worked. A lot of people realize that this world is going to end and Jesus is going to come back. And Left Behind picked up on the same theme that Tim LaHaye did. And they've been saying the same thing. The problem with it is that from the world's perspective, and even at times from the church's perspective, we've been hearing about it so long. We've talked about it for centuries. We've seen all kinds of stories and all kinds of movies about it. But it hasn't happened. And the problem with that is that either we've heard it too long, we either don't believe it, or we forget about it. <laughs> And Peter says, look, I just want you to know, it's going to happen. You need to understand, he said in verse 3 now, chapter 3 again, you need to understand the last days, a lot of people are going to come and say, look, we've heard this forever. I grew up hearing it. I've been in church all of my life. I grew up with those movies. I grew up with these sermons. I grew up with that coming of the Jesus. We've sung songs about it. We've talked about it. We've heard sermons on it. and still not here. And I'm only 59. Can you imagine what it's like for the last 19 centuries of people hearing these same messages, reading the same story, and wondering when it's going to return? His disciples ask him the same question. When are you coming back? I haven't even left yet. When are you coming back? We want to know. And they've been predicting it over and over again, but he said, look, I want you to know a lot of people are going to come, and they're going to say, look, he's been promising that forever. Ever since our ancestors died, everything is on as it has. But somehow they forget 
the judgments of God down through the ages. Peter took them. I don't know if you read it last Sunday morning because I was concentrating on a couple of other pieces of that passage, but Peter in chapter 2 gave you a history lesson. I don't know if you read it. If you didn't, you ought to, but he really gave us a pretty clear history lesson of some glimpses into biblical history. Of what God has done, he said, look, there are a lot of people who are going to come and try to pull you away, and I need you to know that you have to stay on the path and don't go to the right, to the left, or back, as I said a moment ago. What's going to happen, though, is they're going to pay the price for that. And sadly, those who follow them will as well. They may not think so, but I need you to know in verse 4 of chapter 2, look, if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned but sent them to hell, if he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on his ungodly people but protected Noah, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and rescued Lot. Look, if he did all of that, he's going to do this. And if you think that you can ignore the message of God and the judgment of God and the impending plan of God, you got another thing coming because this same God who did all of that is going to do this in chapter 3. I just want you to know that, he says. Any of you see the Bible last Sunday night? Not, not this one, <laughs> but the Bible on History Channel. How many of you saw it? Pretty good. Um, it was interesting. I saw an interview with, with uh, Mark Burnett. I think he does, what, The Voice and Survivor. Producer read their story in Guidepost Magazine. Of he and, and uh, Roma Dow, Downey that, that wanted to produce this. And, you know, in the interview, the question was, why would you want to do this? I mean, it's a story that's been told a lot in hundreds of different ways, and many different people have done it, and they're very successful, and they knew the amount of time it was going to take. But in the article in Guidepost, he said, I really felt like God was asking me to do it. He said, I felt like we had the technology today to do it a little bit better than what they did in the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And, and he said, I, I, we have found that people are so biblically illiterate. They really don't know the Word of God. And so we wanted to produce something that we thought this generation would watch. And obviously, as you saw the, the ratings last week, they did. And it was one of the highest rated things that have been around for a while. It's going to be interesting to see if it sustains after people have seen it once or watched it out of curiosity to see where it goes. But it, it's really interesting. What, what fascinated me is how it paralleled based on what was happening in the events from last week with this section of Scripture in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and 3. Matter of fact, um, Mark's agent called me and said, when are you going to get to those sections? Says, That's when we'll put it on the History Channel. It was worth a shot. <laughs> Not only does Peter remind us of this, Paul does the same thing. There's a, a, write it down somewhere, and hopefully next week I'll have some sermon notes for you. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul does the same thing. Remember Peter said about Paul and talked about what Paul taught. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Peter talks of, or Paul talks about similar events and God's judgment on sinful humanity. But there's a powerful verse in there. They said, look, these things occurred and were written as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things just as they did. And then he begins to list some of those things down through ages and down through time, specifically with the children of Israel. The thing I want you to go back to is the fact that these things happened to them as examples to us and as well, he said in verse 11, as warning about what's going to happen in the ages to come. Peter is saying to them and to us, just as certain as God's gift is amazing and his grace has come to all of humanity, so too will his judgment. And don't ever get lulled into thinking that because it hasn't happened, it won't. 
just as sure as the other promises of God has been fulfilled, so too will this one. Down through the ages, many have tried to predict the coming. Even the disciples wanted to know. Lord, I'm often, I, every time I read scripture, I put myself in her place, and I, I got to believe that, that they really did wonder if it was going to happen in their lifetime. Jesus, you said over and over again, you were going to die on a cross. We didn't believe it. We didn't want to hear it. Matter of fact, you can almost see the disciples every once in a while plugging their ears when Jesus said, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die in the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to hang on a cross. They didn't want to believe it, didn't think it was ever going to be true. Matter of fact, denied that it would ever happen. But it happened. And there one day when that sight that no one could ever imagine was Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity exactly the way he said it would. And all of a sudden taken off the cross and put in the grave and their world was shattered. Matter of fact, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus said, when Jesus appeared, they didn't know it, and they said, we had hoped he was the one. In the hearing of the coming Messiah forever, we, would, we, we had hoped he was the one. But now he's gone. And then he rises from the dead and proves himself into 500 witnesses that we'll talk about in a few weeks ago. And, and now they're sitting here saying, okay, you said you were going to die on a cross. We didn't believe it, but you did. You said you were going to rise from the dead. Who does that? <laughs> I mean, who rises from the dead in their own power? But you did. So i got to believe, if you said you were going to die on a cross and you did, and you said you were going to rise from the dead and you did, and you now say you're coming back, you're going to come back. We want to know when. This week, next week, a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when are you coming back? Jesus said, look, it's not even for you to know. The day and the hour, no one knows, even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but the Father. Not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but I'm telling you as sure as I'm standing here, it's going to happen. Down through the ages, many have talked about his judgments. Many have predicted his return. Some packed their suitcases, put on white robes, stood on a mountain waiting for him to return. For all I know, they're still there. Everybody said it was going to happen in May of 2011, May of 2012, October 2011, October 2012, and here we are in 2013. But again, we could actually be one of those people and Paul Peter saying, look, just because I haven't returned, you think I am. I'm just telling you, you better be ready because I will return. Many have tried to predict the time and the ages. Many have said that the judgments that we have seen up to this point, certainly God has to do this. Certainly God is judging humanity for all of this. Can't even imagine what it must have been like to live through World War II. Any war like that, but of that magnitude when bombs and people are being destroyed and nations were in uproar. Many had to believe that that was a time. The world was coming to an end. Everything was culminating. All somebody had to do in the Cold War was push the button. The world was going to be obliterated. Exactly what he said here. I grew up that way in high school. Well, the power of the megabomb and the megaton hydrogen bomb and all the, the things that we learned in high school about one push of a button, the world is going to be incinerated like Peter predicts it here, although they never talked about Peter's prediction. And here we are still. Some pastors even said 9-11 was a judgment of God. I don't agree with what they said at all. But I'm telling you, Jesus said there's going to come a day. There'll be wars and rumors of wars that are beginning, but as sure as I said I would rise from the dead as I did, as sure as I said I would die on the cross and I did, as sure as I say I'm coming back again, I will. And as sure as I'm standing here, 
Not only does God have a beginning, not only does time have a beginning, not only does this world have a beginning, but as sure as I'm standing here in this pulpit this morning in 2013, the world has an end. And so the question that every single one of us have to ask ourselves are these. What do I do in the meantime? And secondly, will I be ready? You have to answer those two questions. And next Sunday morning we'll talk about them because they're critical to our future. Father, I thank you for your word. It is powerful. It's captivating. It's, it's, <laughs> it's exciting. It's encouraging. It's challenging. It's stretching. It's honest. I love that about you. With everything you've promised that comes true, we know that our future is also in your hands. Many have wandered down through the ages, what are you waiting for? And possibility that it's for somebody here in this audience this morning. Somebody that will be here Easter Sunday morning. Who for the eighth time or twelfth time have come to church because it's Easter and we're supposed to, who all of a sudden will recognize this is the year. I need to commit my life to Christ. You're waiting. You don't want anyone to perish, but all to come to faith and repentance in Christ. But your word is very clear. You will not wait forever. So, Father, as we unpack your word these weeks together and begin to see the implications of it, I trust that by the Spirit of the living God, you will teach us, prepare us, remind us, walk with us, in our journey together. I love your word. I love how honest you are. There's a lot I don't understand. But what I do, I obey. And for all of us in here this morning, there's a lot that's really clear. And this is one of those truths. So teach us uh, during this time together. For that one this morning here that's uncertain about their life and their future, I pray that today, this week, this month, they will not wait, but commit their lives to you. In the name of Christ, we pray.